Morning, St. Clair. Oh, that's great. It's the first 25 minutes of my sermon addressing myself. And I'm dressing, so that's glorious in this new world. Um, so good to be with you. You and you and you. I don't know. Wherever anyone is in the world, it's good to be with you. I'm sure my mom is watching in England because she tells me that every week because she's like, well, I don't know if she thinks anyone else will listen to my sermon. Anyway, so my mom tunes in. Uh, before we dive into the message, a couple of things. First is, I do want to say thank you so much to our community for responding to the food drive. Uh, we had a collection yesterday of food, particularly for people at this time who are struggling with food insecurity, who many families don't have food. And uh, my wife, who was helping organizing it, had planned to take one van load to St. Matthew's house, and we ended up needing like three vans to take all this food, so we're super thankful for your response. Uh, and I also want to say thank you to um, Rebecca Kaplan and Kate Kirk and a bunch of people working with the refugee sponsorship. Just to say, we feel this is a response to prayer. So we're praying for a while how in a world of injustice, where we've seen racial inequality happening, how do we respond to that? And a friend of mine, Aaron White, who lives in Vancouver, had this throwaway line a year ago. He said to me, Matt, revivals come into Canada through First Nations and refugees. And he kept talking, and I was like, well, hang on a minute. It's a pretty big statement. And so we were praying into that, and it feels like this opportunity to sponsor this family has kind of dropped in our lap through prayer. So really thankful that God is at work in our community despite the challenges we're currently facing amid this COVID uh, pandemic. If you're joining us, uh, we're in this series in First John. And as I was thinking about this uh, text for this morning, uh, which is a pretty weighty text, I was thinking about the context for First John and what are some of the major themes. And I was reminded of this video I saw a year ago by the writer and author Anne Lamott. It's a TED Talk, and she had this beautiful little video on the 12 things I know for sure in turning 61. She had a big birthday in her life, and she did this TED Talk and the things that she has reflected on in her life. And here's just a couple of things. If you know Anne Lamott, she's very humorous as well. Uh, she said, life is both a precious and fathomable gift, and it's also impossible at times. Life was simultaneously heartbreaking and sweet, beauty and despair. There are poverty, floods, babies, acne, Mozart, all swirled together. Almost everything will work again if you unplug it for a few minutes, including you. Which actually reminded me of the IT crowd line, have you tried turning it off and on again? Anyway, that's a very cool reference for IT crowd fans. Uh, chocolate with 75% cocoa is not actually a food. You can use it in snake traps or to balance the legs of wobbly chairs. It was never meant to be edible. And the last one, uh, the movement of grace is what changes us, heals us, and heals our world. Grace finds you exactly where you are, but doesn't leave you where it found you. I'd encourage you, it's a beautiful little video, but it got me thinking. So this last summer, I was talking to my father-in-law, who had a birthday in his 60s, and I did the thing that maybe all father-in-laws are terrified about. I turned to him and I said, as you turn this birthday, I'm not going to say what number it was, um, what are the three things you look back on that are the most important things in your life? And he referenced relationships and grace as two of those. And the reason 
I share that is when we look at First John, most commentators believe this is maybe the same uh, author of John's Gospel, and he's writing this later in his life. And packed into First John is these are the most important things I want to tell the community of Jesus. And the central theme of First John is love. John says, if you remember nothing else, I want to talk to you about love. Not just love as a feeling, but this understanding of this agape, unconditional love. This sacrificial love is central to John's life, and that's what he's trying to say to the people of Jesus. I think as Thomas Aquinas says, love is to will the good of another. So John is saying, what is this love that is so transforming us that it works in us and through us to transform our neighbors and our society around us. What if when we understand God's love for us, it encourages us to love others? I heard a respected leader in the church say recently that maybe the church has discipled people in lots of ways, but actually not how to love. So the question when it comes to following Jesus is, am I becoming a more loving person. And maybe that's a question we ask ourselves this morning. When you look on your discipleship, is following Jesus making you a more loving person? The context for these verses that Laurie read in 1 John are in John chapter, 1 John chapter 2, it starts out by saying, my dear children. So when John is coming in with this challenging word in these verses, he's actually not doing it because he's frustrated with people. He's doing it because he loves them. He calls them his dear children. And this is what it says, starting in verse 15. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. Depending on how you read those verses and if you've grown up in the church, maybe your first thought is, so does that mean we just have to retreat from the world? When John says, do not love the world, does that mean we have to hide away, kind of M. Night Shyamalan in the village kind of community in the middle of nowhere and seclude ourselves from the world? And that's not what John is actually saying. When John uses the word world, he's not saying the physical material world. We know in John 3.16, earlier in John's work, he says, for God so loved the world. So he's not talking about this physical world, but he is talking about the broken value systems and destructive patterns of the world that don't actually honor God and his kingdom. And what John is saying is the church is always called to be an alternative community to that way of living in the world. And I feel like in this time of COVID, these words should speak to our heart because at times we can say, well, I'm not like them. I, I, I don't associate with them because I'm not like that. And almost we can have this sense of pride of assuming we know better how to follow Jesus rather than searching our own hearts and saying, are we authentically loving and following Jesus as he's called us to do? It's interesting that earlier on in First uh, John, it says, anyone who claims to be in him, in Jesus, must walk as Jesus did. So John says, don't love the world, these kind of rhythms and patterns that we see in the world. And then he goes on to say what that actually looks like in our lives. He says, for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. 
There's a lot of language in there that we have to unpack. Lust and flesh are really important words. And flesh, again, isn't John talking about the physical body, not the flesh as we know it. John is talking about the desires and impulses and the rebellion in our heart and our lives that are against God. It's not necessarily physical. It's these desires that we have that don't live in line with God and his kingdom. And lust is this idea of something that is rebellious against God. He goes on to talk about the pride of life. And the pride of life is this this idea of us thinking we're better than someone else. As Joel said earlier, that maybe our achievements and our gifts and our successes got here to this point. Maybe some Monday authors would say the lifestyle that we have, and we look around at others and think ourselves better than them. So I think pride, C.S. Lewis says, is insidious in our life. But what if John is saying life is a gift and that we're all created in his image and therefore we're all equal? And it's easy at times in our lives to assume, oh, I got here because I'm actually better than everyone else. Or where you are in your life, rather than knowing that's something that we need to bring under the lordship of Jesus. So if we think about the lust of the eyes, uh, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life, maybe some of you have grown up in church, maybe your Sunday school, you're thinking, this sounds awfully familiar. Where have I heard some of these words before? And they're actually found back in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 6, and the temptation of Adam and Eve in the garden. This is what it says. This is Genesis 3, verses 4 to 6. Maybe I'll start with verse 3, actually. But God did say, you must not eat the fruit of the tree that is the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when we eat from it, our eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. So we see here right at the start this idea of these themes that John is unpacking are rooted in our identity as humans, that we've decided we want to be like God and choose for ourselves what's best for us. It's interesting this back and forth with the serpent because he says, you will actually be like God, even though earlier in Genesis 1 it says that You learn that in seminary, how to catch a mic. So, so here in the garden, we see uh, humankind in rebellion against God because he's deciding we can do things by ourselves. It's interesting, one Monday author who I really appreciate, Ronald Rollheiser, he kind of takes these understandings of 1 John and he also puts them into Monday framework and he says, what if some of the challenges we face today are narcissism, pragmatism, and unbridled restlessness. Narcissism, this preoccupation with ourself. Pragmatism, the excessive focus on work and achievement. And unbridled restlessness, this sense of not being able to be present, that we're constantly distracted. It's interesting when John talks about loving the world, he actually also uses the word agape. So when he says, do not love the world, it's this unconditional sacrificial love of the world. 
in uh, John chapter 3, verse 16, it says, uh, for God so loved the world. And later on in verse 19, it says, for men have loved darkness more than light. What John is consistently trying to say is we all have a love. We're created as people to love, but often our love and our desire is channeled in the wrong places. St. Augustine calls this disordered love. St. Augustine says we are actually fundamentally lovers, not thinkers. And our lives are shaped ultimately by what we love, not necessarily what we think. This is what James K.A. Smith says, and he's been really helpful for me in thinking about our discipleship as people who love, not necessarily the way we think and our patterns of thinking. He says this, our idolatries are not intellectual. They are effective. Instances of disordered love and devotion. Idolatry is caught more than it's taught. We practice our way into idolatries. We absorb them from the water in which we swim. Hence, our idolatries often reflect the ethos of our environment. See, what James K. Smith is trying to say is we're actually lovers by nature. And I think in our Western world, we've brought ourselves to think we're actually ultimately thinkers. And if I just listen to something and believe it, then my behavior in my life will change. But actually Smith and Augustine, and I think John is saying, no, we're actually people driven by love and desire. And it's actually our desires and loves that have gone off track. And I think we see that even in the midst of COVID. I think I said right at the start of this COVID pandemic that it's almost feeling like we're in a world where there's a reverse iceberg situation in our lives and the things that are in our lives that we've tried to push beneath the surface, COVID has brought them to the surface. And now we're confronted with some of the things in our inner life that God is looking to love and transform. James K. Smith goes on to say this, being a disciple of Jesus is not primarily a matter of getting the right ideas and doctrines and beliefs into our head in order to guarantee proper behavior. Rather, it's a matter of being the kind of person who loves rightly, who loves God and neighbor, and is oriented to the world by the primacy of that love. Now, you see, what we think is important, uh, how we gather information and how we unpack and think about different things is important, but maybe that's not the primary thing that shapes our heart and our lives. I was thinking about this the other day because I know intellectually the McDonald's is a really bad idea. I've seen all of the documentaries. I know that the meat isn't necessarily meat. I know that it's not healthy for me. I've seen supersize me and it terrified me. And I swore at that moment, I will never eat McDonald's again in my life. Especially when they put those fries, do you remember that? In like the cylinder and basically they were still the same like three months later. Anyway, so I know this all to be true, but at 10 o'clock in the evening when I'm driving back from a leadership team meeting and I go past the McDonald's on the corner of Main and King and I see the golden arches and the super value menu light up, my thinking is not helpful. I drive into that McDonald's and I take a bite of my double cheeseburger and then 20 minutes later, I feel terrible. But in that moment, I'm driven by desire. 
And that's a humorous example, but actually, in many ways, that is how we are. There's certain patterns to our life that we think, but actually we're driven by this deep desire and sense of love. So if this is the case, and this is what John is getting at, how do we actually shape our loves and our affections towards God? Augustine's idea of disordered love is we've actually got our loves in the wrong place, and actually we love different things above loving God. But when we truly know and receive God's love and love him back, it actually shapes all the other loves in our life. So here's a couple of things that came to mind in reading First John. The first way we shape our love is to be in community. John's writing to this community of faith, and he's saying, you cannot love just by yourself. Which actually makes sense because Jesus says, love neighbor, which means we don't live in isolation. And our community, when we confess to one another, when we're generous towards one another, actually shapes our love. I'm in a prayer group that meets on Thursday mornings at six o'clock. We're still doing it socially distanced in the backyard. It's freezing cold, but amazing. And part of that prayer group is confession. And what I really appreciate is that actually shapes me and holds me in a place that I need, whereas if I was by myself, I would be off track. And I think community also shapes our love for one another. One of the big mantras of our world is, I just don't feel like that, or that doesn't work for me. But that actually doesn't shape our love for others because what we're saying is I'm more important than my neighbor. And there's times where I'm part of something in community because actually love isn't just a feeling. It's something that is shaped by being with one another as we are together. So I think community shapes our love. The second are these practices we talked about. Dave and I did a video a week or so ago about a rule of life and how these practices in our life actually shape us in our love for God. We believe the practices we participate in actually allow the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. This is James Smith again. Love takes practice. If you are what you love and if love is a virtue, then love is a habit. This means that our most fundamental orientation to the world, the longings and desires that orient us towards some version of the good life, is shaped and configured by imitation and practice. And so we fully believe that as we practice certain things in our life, whether it's prayer, scripture, generosity, hospitality, that actually shapes us in order to love others. And I've seen that to be true in my own life. These practices actually order my love for God and for others. So community, these practices, and ultimately prayer as well. It's a place of shaping my love. Because when I start with prayer and I start my day in prayer, it grounds me in my relationship with God. And then through that, when I receive his love, that allows me to love others well. Later on in 1 John, there's these beautiful words where John says, how great is the love the Father has lavished upon us, I love that word lavish, has lavished upon us that we are called children of God, and that is what we are. Joel spoke to it in our call to worship, when we remind ourselves of our identity It actually shapes us in order that we can love others with the same love that we have received from Jesus. See, we ultimately believe the gospel is one of love that is transformative. 
It's not an ideology. It's not just good information. It's actually life transforming. As we receive God's love towards us, it allows us to love others well. What we see in the garden is this temptation of humankind, and what we see in the wilderness in the Gospels is Jesus overcoming that temptation, because ultimately Jesus' love is for us. In the book of Hebrews, it says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. What the writer of the Hebrews is trying to say to us is, we are Jesus's joy. And so this morning, I'm going to invite Dave to come in a moment. He's going to, uh, we're going to participate in communion together. But why don't we just um, sit for a moment in quiet and allow God's love to actually meet with us. We fully believe that as we, as we sit there and receive it, God's love has to be received. It's not something we earn. That his love will actually shape us and our hearts so that we can be a community shaped and modeled by love. Why don't we pause in quiet for a moment? Jesus, you remind us that our love uh, can't be earned, that your love can't be earned, that we need to receive your unconditional love towards us. Jesus, as people who love in the world, would you shape our desires for you? Would we remind ourselves that We don't just necessarily think our way into new ways of living, but we live our way into new ways of thinking that our actual ways of practices and the loves that we have can be shaped by you. Jesus, may the church be marked as a community of love in a world where we're known for so many things, many of which don't honor you. Would you help us understand that we are to be marked by your love? In Jesus' name, amen.